Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm here with my uh, good friend, Chris Nicholson. Uh, most of you know him as a fellow TV critic. Uh, we've done a lot of shows on Better Call Saul. And what you probably don't know is that he's also a big war fan. Um, he likes thinking about war. He likes uh, talking about it. He's uh, been involved in, um, he's been uh, you know paying very close attention to the war in Ukraine. And we've been talking about it for months and months. And I thought it's a good time to just bring him on and discuss what's going on. Uh, so how are you doing, Chris? Uh, doing well. I, I don't know if I'm I'm a war fan exactly. Uh, I, I think I'd, I'd rather it not happen, but but I am following it pretty closely. Okay, and you don't want wars to happen, but if they do happen, you're gonna you're gonna enjoy them. Well, I, I'm gonna keep a close eye on them. At <laughs> I, I will say I don't think this is the I don't think this is the biggest war we're gonna see in our lifetimes. Hmm, that's an interesting prediction. So, yeah, like, what's what's the biggest war before this? So, I think Syria. Like, how many people di- have died in Syria? I've seen estimates. Uh, I I knew this at one point, but I forgot. I, I know. I think Iraq. I don't know. I've seen estimates of the hundreds of thousands for those wars. So it might not be the biggest war. In, you know, if you just want to use casualties. Um, well, you mean you mean uh, casualties among soldiers or including civilians? I think they include civilians, and it's like very weird. Like, it do I mean, it's it's so hard to like the Iraq stuff. It's like so it's so complicated. Like, you have direct deaths, which is like not that high, but then you have like excess deaths. Like, you do a survey and see how many people died as a result of the war, and that gives you like you know massive numbers, like half a billion or or something like that. Um, and I I don't know. Uh, let's see, Syrian civil war. Uh, you people might hear me typing on my computer because this is the benefit of being here. Uh, estimates are between 500,000 and 610,000 as of March 2022. So we haven't, it's not as big as the Syrian civil war, uh, assuming that we can believe that. Well, the Syrian civil war lasted a long time. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the intensity of this one is higher and that we also really can't possibly have any good idea of how many civilians have died. Nobody's going to know that until probably years after the fact. Mm, yeah, I doubt. I doubt we really know in Syria either. I think these are. I think these are guesstimates. Um, and you know, I mean, right? But you know, who knows if this will be? You know, like assuming that it's going to. You know, wars go. You, as you know, wars go in fits and starts, right? So, like, you know, the probably uh, it was going to be very. It's often very intense at the beginning, and we don't know if it's going to stay like that. But so, yeah, so you think you think we'll. Um, yeah, we have no idea on civilian casualties. I haven't even seen any. Uh, I haven't even seen any um, uh, data, even attempts. Have you? Have you seen any? I mean, you, you know, you, you see sometimes the official UN estimates, and, and those are always, you know, extremely low, just because nobody can have any good idea. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we're. Uh, so we should say we're recording this on October third. 2022 it's about uh 4 p.m uh eastern time uh so you know we're going to release this probably uh, hopefully today october 3rd or latest october 4th uh tomorrow so uh, things can change um in the meantime uh yeah well what do you say about some people like pro-russia people i see on the internet saying there there's not a lot of casualty deaths because russia has been particularly humane in this conflict unlike america in iraq which is why uh they don't take they haven't like flattened you know they didn't try to they didn't lob missiles at like central kiev um and they didn't you know try to kill all the ukrainian leaders and all that or they didn't target infrastructure apparently until uh recently um do you, do you give any credence to that i mean only a tiny amount 
Okay, like R- Russia has sent many attacks uh, on Ukrainian cities, uh, and you know it's sent it's used most of its store of precision guided missiles. Uh, it's used most of its cruise missiles. It's 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 used artillery heavily to to just pound Ukrainian cities flat in the Donbas. So you know I, I don't think Russia has shown any particular uh, praiseworthy restraint. It is probably true that it could have sent even more attacks on civilian targets, uh, but we, we see that it is starting to escalate and attack more infrastructure targets and stuff like that. Yeah, and how do we know it's running out of precision-guided missiles? Uh, one one way we know is just because we can see that it's not launching as many of them. Uh, it, it used to be, toward the beginning of the war, it was launching a lot of its uh, caliber cruise missiles from, from ships and and from uh, other platforms. But uh, what we see these days is that it's actually adapting some of its S-300 anti-air missiles. Uh, these these are supposed to be air defense missiles, but instead it's using them to attack ground targets. So that's really kind of a, a sign that it's running low. Yeah, that seems like a sign of desperation. So the so they might, if you know, if it ever comes to Russian territory, the war they would they would perhaps be uh, they would perhaps be short on uh, air defense. Is that the implication? Well, I, I don't know if it would be short on them. I mean, I, I think Russia's got a lot of these things: the S three hundred and the S four hundred. These are the most advanced anti air defense systems in the world. Uh, I, I think that it's using them in part because it has a ton of them. So I don't know if there's any reason to suspect it's going to be running low on those anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, when I, you know, you told me, do you remember when you told me the first time you told me you, you thought that uh, uh, Ukraine could eventually take back all the territory since February 24th and even go beyond February 24th? Do you remember when you told oh, yeah, me that? Yeah, yeah. This, this was back when we first started talking about this war uh, several months ago, I think. And when was this? When do you, when do you think that was? I don't know. We were talking about this, what, March, April? Yeah, right. That's my recollection. That's my recollection, too, um, around that time. And uh, yeah, I thought you were I thought you were crazy. And I don't think a lot of people were saying that, like in the media. Like, do you think the other other a lot of other analysts were saying that? Or do you think you were unique in saying this? I mean, far from unique. But I, I think back at the time, this was just a month or two into the war. I, I think most of the media was was kind of parroting the line that that Russia was just going to crush Ukraine. Yeah. Well, I think when we talked, we started talking about it. I think it was like it was after like so there was this initial push right to take uh, to take the capital to take the major cities, and I think we talked about like that stopped right. Yeah. Um, that, that was stopped, and like I don't know. I think it was maybe around that point when you told me this, but it was still it was still at least a minority view. Um, because look, Russia was like, you know, Russia was right there at the capital. You would, I, I mean, if you know nothing and you're just watching, you know, events, you might think, okay, well, they could, they could take the capital almost <laughs> they could, you know, get to the outskirts of the capital. Well, they focus everything on this like limited area. Um, that's, you know, a fraction of what they were fighting for before, you know, and then like, you know, they have, de- they're on defense instead of offense. Right. Um, which is easier to do. You might suspect that you know they they would hold on indefinitely, right? Would that have been a crazy way to think about it at the time? Well, I think back then, you know, it, it was the majority view that that Russia had just suffered a setback in uh, its defeat uh, in its main attack, and yeah, I, I think that I was in the minority in, in thinking back then that Ukraine 
had very good prospects and was going to push Russia far back beyond the February 24th boundaries. Yeah. And what did you see back then that other people didn't? I'm trying to remember that now uh, because it because now now that it's happening and it seems so obvious. Uh, I think back then, one of the main arguments that I was pointing to might have been about manpower. Uh, yeah, you did talk about that. I, I remember telling you that, that I thought that if you looked at the manpower, uh, Ukraine was was mobilizing a lot of a lot of troops. And I, I thought that it was going to outman outnumber Russia fairly soon. Uh, and it seems that that's the situation we're in right now, at least at this particular moment. Yeah. And, you know, how much did you put on like intangibles, like will to fight? Because it seemed to me that this is, it seems to me that this is key. I mean, it seems to me that Ukrainians, you know, just simply are more motivated to fight than, than Russians are. Is that your impression too? I mean, yeah, that, that seems like it's an increasingly significant factor. I mean, Look, you, you've got Russia. It's been conscripting people in the Donbas for a while now, and we have already seen the effects of that. Uh, that's what happened in the Kharkiv counteroffensive a month ago. We saw that, first of all, the Russian positions were thinly manned. Secondly, a lot of those were conscripts from the Donbas, and they just surrendered. They didn't want to fight anyway. Uh, so they were like, great, you know, if anything, we'll get better treatment and better fed now. Uh, and I think that we may see more of that now that Russia is conscripting its own people. You know, a lot of them are just going to surrender at the first opportunity. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard to know these things because Ukraine was also had conscription, right? And so, you know, they they prevented men they prevent men from leaving the country. I think they still do. And the question is, you know, how motivated are people in Western Ukraine, right? Um, uh, be to fight for Eastern Ukraine, Russian-speaking, you know, regions, and it wasn't always obvious that they would be right. Uh, wasn't completely obvious. It, it could have gone both ways. You know, back then we, we could have seen Ukrainian will to fight kind of crumble in the face of uh, some of this Russian aggression. Instead, it seems pretty clear that we've seen that when when Russia tries to tries to break Ukraine's will to fight. Uh, Ukraine, the w- Ukrainian will generally seems to become stronger. Now, yeah. uh, I don't, I'm not sure how much conscription we have seen from Ukraine. Y- you're right that from the beginning, they stopped military aged men from leaving the country. Uh, but did they, did they directly conscript them to fight? I'm, I'm not sure I remember seeing that happen. Uh, and in fact, this reminds me of a, a recent piece of news that I just saw, something that was pretty interesting on the question of manpower. Uh, Zelensky just recently ordered two relevant things, I think. First of all, he delayed the demobilization of, of some units. And coupled with that, I think he also postponed a, a conscription wave or a, a recruitment drive that was supposed to happen on schedule, which is interesting. Uh, Ukraine's actions lately seems to be saying that it thinks it has enough men now. It, it, it's not making it a high priority to get new recruits. Yeah. Um, so here's a Newsweek article from September uh, September 14th, which is you know less than a, month, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Ukraine is put. This is what sounds like what you're talking about. Ukraine is weighing putting an end to mandatory military conscription. So it must mean they must have had military conscription right until. Uh, September, right? 
um, as Russia's conducting. So, so it looks like they did have it. I've seen videos online, I don't know how represented they are, of people not wanting to be conscripted. Like you see these videos from Russia, but I, I saw some early in Ukraine of uh, things that people claim were people. So it does seem like they did have conscription, right? Uh, I guess I guess there are degrees of it. You know, uh, it, it there could be what you might call conscription from among the reserves or uh, among the territorial defense brigade, brigades. Uh, that that would be an intermediate level from conscripting the regular civilian population. So certainly it mobilized its its all of its reserves. Uh, but but I'm not sure I remember ever reading about Ukraine conscripting non-reserves. I think that I think that the closest it might have come to that, well, actually, okay, it's always had. Let, let me just read about it. It's always had some kind of conscription. Uh, okay, but this is this is like the regular conscription between uh, regular mandatory military service, just like Russia has when you turn a certain age. Right. Yeah, I, I think that 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 kind of scheduled regular conscription is, is a bit different from you know. You say they uh, don't know if they're sending just men to the front lines to, to fight in these battles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, uh, yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure whether Ukraine ever just did a one-off where, where it drafted civilians and sent them to the front lines. I'd, I'd have mm-hmm. to read more to see whether that happened. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, anyways, they have, they have the, they have, they, whether, whether they're conscripts or they're, you know, conscripts can be voted. There's a degree of resistance to, conscription and you know i think that the, the ukrainian nationhood was much realer like we, we like i think before the war right we thought that you know it was like a pretty divided country and maybe it was closer to that in 24 uh 2014 right i, I you've probably seen these like big marches in kharkiv uh pro-russian marches in 2014 like the, you know this this happened we see none of that today is is, is your impression that i i think gherkin uh, said this too that the, you know the decade there really was a, a drop off in pro Russian sentiment. Is is that your is that your understanding of this too? Well, certainly I, I could expect there was a big drop off at least after uh, the most recent invasion. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it's hard to maintain pro Russian sentiment when when you when you see the results of the warfare right right in your backyard. Yeah. And especially, it's hard, it's hard to maintain a, a, any kind of pro-Russia stance when they're drafting your, your brothers and fathers. Yeah, well, I mean, you could say the same about Ukraine, right? Ukraine could, Western Ukraine could, I mean, potentially, in theory, right? Western Ukraine said, don't, you know, don't draft me, don't, we don't want to sacrifice for people in Kiev could have, you know, theoretically said, you know, we don't want to be involved in this, we don't want to worry about the, you know, these bombs, these missiles coming down on us. We don't want to be conscripted. We know we just discussed whether they really have uh, conscription setting people in front or not. So you, you know, you could have it could have gone the other way, right? I mean, you could, right? It's not it's not well, clear. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. But you know, another thing to keep in mind is that when Russia conscripts Ukrainians, it basically uses them as cannon fodder. It, it sends them right to the front lines and, and has them die before the, the Russians from Russia. Uh, but U- yeah. Ukraine, you know, it, it does it. It, it treats its less trained troops. Uh, it, sometimes it doesn't as often send them to the front line. It has them, you know, man, man areas behind the front lines. Yeah. How, um, you know, what do you think Russia was like? What do you think Russia was 
was thinking? Like, why, why did they go in with, you know, people who, I don't know if I take these people seriously, people say like, oh, there's a formula for how many troops you have to have to occupy territory. You know, I, I don't know about this formula stuff, but, uh, you know, people, there, people generally agree there was, there was, <laughs> well, there were way too few troops for what they were trying to do. Um, oh, yeah. so what do you, what do you think? What do you think was like driving that apparently bad decision-making? I don't, I don't, Really, no. I, I guess a lot of it was hubris. Uh, and, you know, maybe it wasn't even hubris. I mean, we ourselves thought that Russia had a huge advantage back at the beginning of the invasion. E- everybody yeah. seemingly thought that Russia was going to steamroll Ukraine, maybe the entirety of Ukraine, within a few days. Uh, Russia attacked with, I think, something like 200,000 men. And, you know, a- after all the casualties and replacements, I think I've seen Russian commentators themselves as recently as a week ago, saying that Russia had somewhere around 170,000 men now in Ukraine. That's really not nearly enough to be doing what it's trying to do. Yeah, well, I think there was a reporting that they they thought they had supported Ukraine, that they thought that they could just basically, they're like, you know, if like, you know, if, if like, you know, half the Ukrainian intelligence and military or whatever, some reasonable portion turned on Zelensky. I think that's what they were thinking, right? There, there yeah, seemed yeah. to be some idea that they would have a lot of support on the ground, which was... I, I think that is right. That is one of Russia's key miscalculations. They thought that a lot of more Ukrainians would be joining them. And, you know, this reminds me, I, I, I read some reports that uh, Russian intelligence, it had, it had bribed a bunch of Ukrainian politicians to support it. Uh, and then when the invasion came, the Ukrainians just, you know... They, they supported Ukraine instead. It turned out they'd just been taking Russia's money and lying to it. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, there was, I think there was a good, there was a good Washington Post series uh, on this. Um, okay, so like manpower has been a big issue. Um, what do you think about uh, the recent you know, mobilization of, uh, uh, that's going on in Russia? Um, well, it seems to be going very poorly, uh, according to Russia's own reports, you know, so first of all, Russia is calling it a partial mobilization, and the official number is they say that they're aiming to mobilize 300,000 reservists. Uh, but you know, I, I think that a lot of people have been saying that, that unofficially Russia is trying to mobilize around a million men, and the, the burden is falling a lot on the minority ethnic groups uh, that, that are farther away from Moscow, you know, and, and they're, they're not following their own rules, it seems. It, it looks like what's going on is that, that although officially they have strict rules, like we can only mobilize people with prior military experience uh, who are in good health, uh, it turns out that in the way they're executing their own mobilization, they're just giving quotas to the offices in charge of it and saying, you know, we, we need you to send us this many men. And so because of the, meet the desire to meet the quotas, the offices are ignoring the rules about military service and health. Yeah. And what, what, what if, I mean, so like what's, what if they can brute force their way into this, these big, you know, these big uh, numbers of trust. So yeah, I've heard that too, that they're trying to get, you know, as many men as possible. What if they, what if they get a, a million? I mean, it's theoretically possible. It's a big country. 
Um, could that could that turn things around? Like we should talk about where we are right now. We just had an uh, early September, <coughs> less, uh, about a month ago. There was the Kharkiv offensive where Ukraine basically overnight. I remember it was like a weekend. It was like right Saturday. Like we woke up and uh, Ukraine had taken back ten percent of the territory that Russia had taken. And I, I was surprised. I was surprised by this because I've been paying attention, like you know, on the Institute for Study of War, the daily what was going on, and it was like. Russia would like was so slow and incremental, and it was it was advancing in Donetsk and Luhansk, but it was like you know they would be at this town for like you know weeks just shelling and shelling and shelling and have to circle it from every direction, and finally they would you know take this rubble. So I'm like, oh, this war must favor the defensive. Like you know, if Ukraine ever uh, goes on the offensive, they're going to have like a difficult time. Um, yeah. It's not going to, but it was just so asymmetrical. Like the trouble that Russia took to get Izium uh, versus like how easily Ukraine took it back and the you know the rest of that area, um, you know it was very it was it was very surprising and that really like you know I think I think uh, showed me something. Um, yeah, that, that's that's really where we saw the manpower issues first coming into play in a major way. Uh, so Russia, it had been. It had been very slowly advancing in this grinding war of attrition. And I think you're right. You should not abandon the conclusion that that warfare really favors the defender now. And and that's one of the the lessons that we can draw from this war. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, in the history of war, there's always a back and forth uh, with technological progression between whether the offensive is favored or or the defensive. And and there was a a major shift uh, before the, the invention of, of the long-range rifle and artillery, warfare favored the offensive. Uh, and then suddenly we got rifles and artillery, and almost almost in the blink of an eye, the defender was heavily favored. Uh, and then, then you have stuff like the invention of tanks and the offensive, you know, tanks and planes, and the offensive gets the advantage again. But we seem to be seeing a shift back to the defender's advantage, and the defender still has a huge advantage. Uh, the reason why we saw that very sudden advance by Ukraine in, in Kharkiv was basically that although the defender has a huge advantage right now, Russia was suffering from its lack of manpower. Uh, it had lost a lot of its infantry in its grinding advances in the Donbass. And mm. then Ukraine kind of coupled that with this very well-executed deceptive plan where it telegraphed for months that it was planning a counteroffensive in the south in Kherson. And so mm. it got Russia to send a lot of its best infantry to defend and entrench in Kherson. And so then Russia was just spread very thin in the Northeast in Kharkiv. And so the defenders would have an advantage if they were there, but there just weren't mm. enough of them there. So Ukraine uh-huh. was able to puncture their, their thin defenses and then kind of run wild. Yeah. So is the implication now that if Russia solves its manpower uh you know problem um they could just plug those you know those men into where they need to be and and protect what they have well this this i think that is kind of one of the big questions and i think it's not completely obvious uh i i I see a lot of analysts saying like oh no these 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 untrained poorly equipped men are going to be worse than nothing uh, and I'm not sure that I completely believe that. You know, I think it might be a little, a, a bit of hyperbole to say that a million untrained, uh, poorly equipped men will be worse than none. Right. Uh, you know, 
I, I will say I am confident that they're not going to be an offensive asset to Russia because mm. they don't have the equipment or, or the training for that. They don't have the logistics. Uh, they don't have the supply. Uh, now, on the question of defense. Yeah. So the, no. let's, let's look at this. Yeah. Let's look at the offense first. Then that's interesting what you said. So actually, let's talk. I think it makes more sense to talk about defense first and then talk about offense. So let's let's remember to talk about offense after you. Go ahead. Talk about defense. Yeah. So so, so on defense here here I'm I, I'm torn. I, I I see I see kind of good analysts on on both sides uh, saying saying different things. You know, Mark Hurtling is one of uh, retired Lieutenant General Hurtling is one of the better analysts out there and he seems to be one of the more credible voices taking the position that that these guys are just going to do nothing for russia even on the defensive uh so okay what's going to happen uh russia is going to try to plug them in uh they're going to try to plug them into the trenches they they've outfitted them with with some rusty rusty aak-47s uh you know very poor equipment how useful will they be even on the defensive? You know, here I'm thinking that what we've seen from this war is that it's an artillery war for the most part. Uh, artillery is kind of the basis behind most of the things that are happening when, when both sides have adequate manpower. Uh, and... Let's just let's just let's just define what artillery is for people who don't know about like what exactly just it means because I think this is something that people say all the time just like just like uh, concrete as concrete as you can be what what does that artillery mean? So the big guns that shoot sh- that shoot shells and, and rockets. Uh, so the I guess you got to define you got to separate artillery into the guns and rockets uh, and, oh. and guns are kind of the main thing the long range guns. With a range of anywhere from you know fifteen to to thirty kilometers, maybe forty, with with the right ammunition, yeah. uh, and then seven miles. Where we're Americans here, we we don't do kilometers. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I, I've just started thinking in kilometers because that's that's what that's how these guys think, and that that's that's how they describe everything. Okay, we have to we have to we have to. Submit I'd have to, to translate it in okay. in the miles, but all, all the reporting is done in kilometers, basically. Uh huh. But uh, so a, a mile is what one point six kilometers, something like no, that. It's okay. Our, our our audience can translate on their own. Okay, so they have uh, the guns. You say so the big guns, uh-huh. big guns that that shoot anywhere from you know t- ten to thirty miles, I guess, or ten to twenty five miles. Uh, and and then and then you've also got the, the rockets, especially the multiple launch rocket systems. Uh, which shoot rockets with a longer range. Uh, this is this is high, high miles. This is these these platforms which they have like they look like what do they look like? They mm-hmm. look like mm-hmm. it's like a cubby hole, right? And there's like all these like you know places where the miss- missiles go. Um, yeah, those 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 are those are another kind of artillery. And those yeah, are, and, those are rockets. And the story what does it do to gun and a rocket? A gun is just like a shell, and a rocket is like what is it like? What, what, technically, what makes it a rocket? It explodes. Well, it's not it? like you know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> to me, the category rocket is kind of fundamental. It's, it's got this flamey thing with fuel on it that makes the uh-huh. shell go farther. Okay, it's got a flame. Well, it's it's got flamey thing at the bottom. Okay, and it makes it go further. And okay, does it ex- does it explode on it? Do the sh- do the sh- the guns? Do they explode on impact too? Uh, or just, just yeah, rocket? yeah. I think I think most most shells and rockets would would explode either on impact or or slightly above impact to to get this what's called an airburst effect. 
uh, in this kind of warfare, actually, I think generally it's more deadly if you have these munitions that explode above impact because then they, they can they're more deadly to, to the enemy yeah. infantry. Okay. Okay. So you have these, so it's an artillery war. Okay. You talk about the defensive and, and the manpower and how that can help. And, and this, this, the fact that artillery is so important in this war was really Russia's advantage for most of the war. And, and the reason why Russia was, was able to be making progress in the Donbass for the first couple months of that, of that battle, uh, Russia had, had a huge advantage in the, the, quantity of its guns and the quantity of its ammunition, basically. Mm. Uh, and Ukraine was screaming bloody murder uh, for the U.S. and the rest of the West to, to arm it with these things. Uh, and we were slow. We were slow to be sending all of these things to Ukraine. And it actually it was relying on its old Soviet models. It just ran out of ammunition. Uh, and, and this was around the time when Russia was was successfully taking uh, Severodonetsk. That was when Ukraine basically ran dry. Mm. It ran dry on, on ammo for its artillery, and the U.S. had not yet fully adequately supplied it with the, the NATO replacements. And, and so we, we're starting to see a shift in the momentum in this war, and I think that it largely corresponds, to, not entirely, but it's largely due to just the U.S. and the, the rest of the West outfitting Ukraine uh, with guns and rockets and systems, you know, ammo and, and artillery to launch it. Uh, HIMARS was a major turning point in this war. You know, around the time when we started sending Ukraine HIMARS, uh, the, the mobile rocket launcher, uh, you know, you would see a bunch of analysts, sober-minded analysts saying, there's no such thing as a miracle weapon. There's no mm -hmm. such thing as a wonder weapon that will turn the tide of the war. No. But I think after a couple months of HIMARS action, we can say that they were wrong. And HIMARS actually did basically function as a wonder weapon. Uh, there's a very clear turning in the momentum of the war after we sent a mere 20 HIMARS uh, to, to Ukraine. I, I think maybe 16 HIMARS and then maybe 10, uh, 10 older versions called the M270. Uh -huh. uh, so, I mean, this is a pretty small number of rocket launchers, uh, but it seems to have clearly turned the tide of the war because... They, they dramatically outrange Russian artillery and rocket systems. And it seems that Russian uh, anti-air defense is not able to shoot down the rockets that HIMARS is launching. Uh, this is an important factor. Uh, I remember after HIMARS first started becoming active, uh, shooting it, its basic ammo called the Gimlers, uh, the, the, the standard rocket that the HIMARS shoots, range of 80 to 90, well, okay, kilometers. Uh, 50 or 60 miles, roughly. Uh, Russia believed that its S-400 anti-air system was able to shoot down these HIMARS rockets. Uh, and then once, we, once the Ukrainians started firing them, it turns out that the S-400 could not shoot down the rockets. And that, that was kind of a major turning point in the war. Uh, all, all the Ukraine was able to take down Russian uh, ammo caches and, and command posts as quickly as it could identify them. Mm -hmm. What's the, what's the range difference between the, uh, you might've said it, but between the, what the, the guns that the artillery, the Russia has and then the HIMARS. Uh, so, so the, the NATO version of, of the equipment generally outranges the Russian version by, by at least 10 miles or so. 
uh, I would estimate. So, you know, uh, the, the, our, our, our multiple launch rocket systems, uh, unofficially, I've read that they have a range of 100 kilometers. Maybe that's around 70 or 80 miles. Uh, the, the Russian version of multiple launch rocket systems, I, I think they rely on something more that's called a, a GRAD MLRS. Uh, and that has a significantly shorter range, I think, uh, at least tens of miles shorter. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, key to this, when you're in an artillery fight, range is what wins. Because then your artillery can take, our, take out theirs, and theirs can't even hit yours back. Yeah. So, so, so it's about you... range, and it's about spotting. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, and I think that the Ukraine must have such superior, you know, intelligence on where things are. I mean, the U.S., I think, satellite technology is probably, you know, beyond anything Russia has. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, uh, so do they, I mean, does the Ukraine have a, it has an, has enough of, you know, whatever you, the rockets you put into the high Mars, do they have enough for the, you know, the artilleries, uh, does Russia, what's the limiting factor? Like, okay, I, I guess what I, what I want to know question. is if you have enough manpower, like, do you ever run out of artillery or is artillery just so plentiful in the world that it's just, no, that, that is the, that is the right question. Uh, and the, the limiting factor here for Ukraine is the rockets themselves that, that we can send them to put into HIMARS. Uh, that's the rate limiter. You know, back back a couple months ago, uh, I kind of laughed and rolled my eyes. You, you, would see, you would see daily messages from Ukrainian politicians saying, for us to have a chance in this war, we, we don't need the U.S. to send 20 HIMARS. We need them to send at least 200 HIMARS. And uh -huh. that was completely inaccurate because HIMARS itself is not the limiting factor. The limiting factor is the rockets that HIMARS shoots. Uh, you know, I, I'd have to recalculate it, but basically, the U.S. I think produces around ten thousand of these of these rockets, these Gimler's rockets, per year. And even with twenty or so HIMARS, uh, Ukraine's Ukraine's shooting them at a rate greater than we are producing them. Uh, so that that's kind of the big issue right now. We're we're digging into our own stores. And we, we need to keep a pretty hefty reserve for ourselves in case we ever need to go to war anytime soon. So uh, I think we're, we're trying to scale up. Lockheed is trying to increase production of, of these rockets. Uh, but, you know, we, we are running into supply issues with them, I think. Uh, so it's an open question how successfully and how quickly we can scale up production of the rockets. Yeah, and you showed, I mean, I you showed me an article with the, had a, uh, tweet. We'll put this in the uh, uh, in the show notes um, about the Gim the Gimlers, the GML RS, um, and you know it says something like they it clears enemy forces from an area greater than 100 meters by 100 meters. There we go. The the, the metric system again uh, with one shot and can be de uh, delivered with a range of 90 kilometers. So this means that. 100 meters by 100 meters. How many how many feet is that? I I I just I, I refuse to think in these terms. Uh, 100 meters to feet. Uh, 328 feet. Okay. Uh, so you have 328 by 328 feet, um, and you could basically vaporize everything there. Is is that is that right? So I think you might be referring to a different kind of uh, of rocket right now. Uh, the, so, the so this gets back to the issue we were just M talking about. Uh, the question of how much good on the defensive Russia's mobilized forces will do. Uh, and so here, I think what I've just been telling you over the last couple of days is that I'm seeing, seeing 
hints about an interesting shift in the ammunition that the United States is sending to Ukraine. There are reports that we're, we're now sending them a new kind of rocket with, with a new kind of warhead uh, to, to be fired by these HIMARS launchers. Uh, what we've been sending them in the, in the past is the standard rocket, uh, the standard Gimler's rocket. Uh, I, I think it's called the M1, uh, the, 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 the MA31. Uh, uh, here it like says M30A1, I see on the... The, the M31A1, that is what we have been sending them, the M30A1. And this is, this is a rocket with a warhead that's designed to destroy buildings and equipment, you know, tanks and buildings. But lately, we've been seeing early signs that we are now sending them a different warhead to be launched on these rockets, an anti-personnel warhead. Uh, and this is an important distinction. Uh, this is So we have been sending them the M30A1 warhead. Now we're sending them uh, the M30. Sorry, the, the distinction is the M31 versus the M30. The M30, which we're starting to send now, I think, is anti-personnel. Uh, it's It's got a warhead that's designed to kill as many people as possible instead of so M30, M30 is the people and 31 was what we sent before. So it's confusing because yep. 31 was sent before 30. You would think we would roll them out in, in a more regular. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now we're sending, yeah. now we're sending this one that's designed to kill people instead of tanks and buildings. Uh, and the way it does is it's basically a giant shotgun blast. Uh, the, these, these warheads, instead of having a, a large explosive packed in them, it's got 180,000 tiny tungsten balls, uh, and, and it explodes ab above the ground, and it's basically a shotgun blast that, that, will, that will devastate any people and, and light equipment within, uh, I guess, a 100-meter by 100-meter area. Uh -huh. And so, so the, these, these, these things come balls, are they? they're little, I mean, they're little... They're little they're, can you explain what they are? Do you... Do you uh... I'm asking a lot of granular detail because I'm fascinated by by all of this. Uh, yeah, so, so I think basically the best way to think of it is just a large-scale shotgun blast uh, delivered from a, a range of 50 or 60 miles. Is it one big it's, – it's, it's a bunch of little – do I imagine it as a bunch of little shotgun shells covering a whole area? I, I think that's basically the right way to think of it. Okay. So it's just like oh, – that's, that's amazing. And, and there, this is like – Okay. Wow. The military industrial complex is, is quite amazing. Um, okay. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Uh, continue. Yeah, and so story. this, I think this, this new warhead that we're sending them uh, to be launched by HIMARS, I think this is relevant to the question of how, how good Russia's mobilized men will be on the defensive. Because I kind of think, I'm starting to think that they might not be that useful uh, because they, they might just be, you know, Cannon fodder, literal cannon fodder. Uh, I mean, what can they do? You, you outfit them with rusty rifles, rusty assault rifles. You put them in the trenches. But if the U.S. just sends enough of these, enough of these new warheads, they're just going to be slaughtered. You know, they'll just be chewed up and, and spit out by, by these by these rocket shotguns without being able to do anything. Can you just like distribute these soldiers like across a wide range of area, maybe embed them with civilians and, um, you know, just wait for Ukraine to, to show up. So the, would that sort of blunt the impact? That is, that is an interesting question. And, and that is kind of a, a time honored strategy, uh, for, for when you want to, to protect what when you're at a disadvantage and you want, you want to protect your soldiers. 
basically the time-honored strategy is use civilian shields. Uh, th this is what we've seen ISIS and the Taliban do successfully against the United or, States. Or even, yeah, civilian shields plus combination with that they're just very like spread out, right? They're, they're sort of... Uh, and, and spreading uh, out, of course, is, is also something that they, they, they can do and, and ought to do. So, the, yeah, the, these are tactics they, they probably ought to ad adopt. Uh, so I guess it's a question. I, I think that the mobilized men may do some good on the, on the defensive, uh, and they they may also be they may also have value as reserve forces. Uh, th this is kind of an important thing uh, that that Russia has been lacking at times, it, it, and it was lacking it in the Kharkiv counteroffensive. Uh, look, you've you got your you've got your first line of defense, and the attacker kind of has an advantage if they've done good enough reconnaissance. They they can identify where you're weakest, and they can punch through there. Uh, but what you need is reserve forces to be able to plug in the gaps and counterattack wherever the attacker has punched through. That's what Russia was really missing in the Kharkiv counteroffensive. It did not have the, re re the reserve forces to, to counterattack and plug in the gaps. And so that may be part of the value that these mobilized men bring. Yeah. So it seems like, yeah, okay, so that's, that's interesting. I mean, it seems like... <clears throat> You know, it seems like this is just a question of there is such a um, there's you know such a disparity between cutting edge of American technology and anything Russia has, right? I, I think it, it was sort of um, I don't know if people thought they were peer competitors, but you hear stuff like Russia supposedly was ahead. I mean, people have told me Russia is ahead of the U.S. and hypersonic missiles. And, oh, it is. Okay, and so and and those and and like those are useful for I guess. You know, nuclear use of nuclear weapons, and it, you know, it, I think it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't clear, at least to me. Maybe it was clear to you. I don't know um, how. Just how technologically superior the U.S. was to Russia. I mean, did, did you know that beforehand? And do you think that that's basically just such a, you know, such a, such a like? The, the, is that the fundamental fact here that's determining what's going on? I think I, I did not know that Russia would be unable to effectively defend itself against HIMARS. I did not know that. I think nobody really knew that until it happened. But it seems clear now that that's the case. Uh, now, Russia is ahead of the U.S. when it comes to stuff like hypersonic missiles. And I think that that might have kind of fooled people. Uh, it might have even fooled me a little bit because hypersonic missiles are kind of the cutting edge of military technology. Russia's years ahead of us. Uh, Russia has hypersonic missiles. We don't. You know, we yeah. claim to be in some kind of arms race, but we're years away from, you know, our tests often fail. Uh, but the thing is that this is not a war where hypersonic missiles are actually that useful. Uh, you know, in, in this war, it's much more about quantity than, than quality. Uh, you know, a, a few hypersonic missiles. So, okay, Russia has this great missile. It, 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 it sends it out. It, it has a few dozen of them or something, maybe a few hundred at most. It sends it out. It destroys its target, and so what? It's done. You know, it, it's not a big deal, really. Yeah, there have they fired? They haven't fired it. Have they fired any in this war? No, right? They have. They have. Uh, uh -huh. a, a few months ago, Russia was talking a big game about how it had used its hypersonic missile for the first time, and so okay, they, they used a hypersonic missile. It successfully destroyed its target, which was a, a Ukrainian ammunition depot. Okay, that's great, but it's it's not game changing. And that they don't have that many of these. So the hypersonic missiles 
are cool, but in this particular war, they don't really move the needle one way or the other. Russia doesn't have enough of them to matter. Uh, okay, so you said there there's limits in how much, uh, how many Gimlers and uh, the HIMAR missiles. What about other kinds of artillery? Are you are these Ukrainians and the Russians, for that matter? I mean, do they have an unlimited supply of just like the dumbest, most you know, no. uh, banal kind of shells that they fire uh, at each other? I, I think that Russia. I think Russia still probably has pretty good quantities of, of, of the basic dumb ammunition for, for its big guns. Uh, there were some reports recently that Russia was trying to buy ammunition from North Korea. Mm. Uh, it, it's not clear how accurate that is or whether it's happened. North Korea denied those reports. You know, who knows what any of that means. Uh, if it's true that Russia is trying to buy ammo from North Korea, that would be a bad sign for Russia's ammunition stores. No, maybe uh, maybe they have a lot of it and it's very cheap. Maybe it's just maybe that's a good place my, to buy. My, it. my sense of things is that is that Russia still has pretty good supplies of basic dumb artillery ammunition and guns to fire them with. Uh, I, I think that's kind of what Russia has the most of. That's what its that's what its army and its doctrine have been oriented around. So I think it still has a ton of all that stuff. Okay. Now, and they, Ukraine, don't, they Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think that, I think that, uh, you know, this is the constant struggle for Ukraine. Can, can you, can the West keep up a steady supply of both the HIMARS rocket ammunition and, uh, the, the regular artillery shells, the, the 155 millimeter shells for the artillery to fire? Uh, I think it's a constant struggle. And, and the question really comes down to whether the West can increase production of these things. Because at, at normal production rates, we just don't have enough at the rate. Well, what would stop that for me? I, you know, I saw a Times article where they had, they apparently, they, they built, they, um, they uh, manufacture these things, you know, in, in like a dozen countries or so. It's like, you know, they have them in Turkey and South Korea and the U.S. Like, why wouldn't they? I mean, it's not like something that's very, you know. It's not like something that you, you can. What are we? What are we? What, what are? I mean, what's the what's the limiting factor here that that would prevent the U.S. from able to, uh, being able to do so? Um, you know, I th I think it's just a question of time. Like, of course, we can increase production. Uh, it just takes time to to build the factories, uh, to set up the supply chains, and to tr train the train the people to work at the factories. Uh, and you know, the the thing is that that this war. This is a larger scale war than we have seen in a long time. I mean, it's it's the highest intensity war. I don't know, maybe since World War II. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I guess I'd have to compare it to the Korean War, or the Vietnam War. But it's a very high intensity war, and our peacetime production of all of this ammo just is not nearly enough to keep up with Ukraine's voracious appetite for ammo. Mm hmm. Yeah. Okay, so and what about what about on the what's your sense of the Russia? You say they have enough. Is there anything that I mean? Is is there anything that would um, that the U.S. can do to like? I think that they're not going to make the Russians are probably in trouble as far as making more precision guided missiles, right? Do they need yes, technology? Because to that, do that? that that requires uh, semiconductors, and we have starved their supply of advanced semiconductors. Mm -hmm. And then, but then the um, the the regular shells that presumably they can make they can make that on their own forever. Um, you know, I'd have to look more into the details, but my sense is, is yes. Uh, so when it comes to precision munitions, Russia is going to be in trouble when it comes to manufacturing these guided rounds. 
but when it comes to regular dumb explosives, my, my, my guess is that they're probably they're probably not going to be running into any supply issues particularly soon, I would guess. Okay. So it so sounds like where we are is uh, Russia has dumb you know, weapons. Ukraine doesn't, but you know, could over time is going to get more. Uh, but then Ukraine has the high Mars. Like how cool? I mean, are they like? Uh, so Ukraine has the high Mars. They have these high Mars and Gimblers. They have the the you know the superior rockets um, that other people don't have. And but at the same time, Ukraine. The longer this goes on, the more of those Ukraine can get. And then the just the Russian, uh, the Russian, uh, you know, the, the the higher end stuff that Russia has. That's just being depleted over time and is not going to be replaced. Right? Is is that sort of yeah. where we are? Yeah, so, so we are seeing a trend right now where Russia is running out of its best stuff, and Ukraine, on the other hand, keeps getting more of the best, highest-end stuff because, because the West is, is shipping more of them. Uh, and the latest news is that France is, is reaching a deal to, to send a, a bunch of its best guns, uh, the Caesar self-propelled artillery. Uh, and that, that's really kind of the kind of artillery that matters most in this war, when it comes to the big guns, what you want are the highly mobile big guns that, that you don't have to tow and drag around, the ones that can drive themselves uh, and do so quickly on wheels. Uh, and, and France has some of the best of these that it sent over. It's Caesars. Uh, and France just agreed to send six to 12 more of the, of the newest version of the Caesars to Ukraine. Uh, it was going to send them to Denmark, but Denmark has agreed that Ukraine can get them instead. And so the big question here, Ukraine keeps getting more of the best guns. I think that really the limiting factor here is, is how quickly the West can increase production of ammo and how deeply it's willing to dig into its own stores. Uh, and, you know, my, my, my thinking on that is like, look, what, what are we saving it for? Uh, it, that a lot of this ammo, it was, it, was, it was built to kill Russians. And so I think a lot of people are thinking, why would we save it to fight Russians ourselves when we can just send it to Ukraine and they can fight Russians with it right now? Yeah. Yeah. Russia is not in the position to, you know, <laughs> to invade Western Europe or anything at this moment. So uh, yeah, I think that makes, that makes sense. Okay. So that's, that's, that's the defense. Uh, you know, if you were going to give Russians advice, how, or like, what are the prospects for going on offense with these? Let's say they get the million trillion. Let's just say they have, yeah, they have the bad part. Cause this is what the, I, th- I think this is what the optimistic Russia uh, pro Russian side relies on. Um, you know, they, they think that Russia is just a very big country. Ukraine is, you know, a big country too, but it's lost a lot of, it's lost a lot of people, you know, refugees and uh, you know, lost a lot of people, casualties and was started off with a smaller base. So like what, you know, what can Russia use its manpower to, um, uh, to actually take more territory um, once once this mobilization really gets off the ground, I don't really think so. Uh, and so here here we come back to the question of, of equipment. And so the limiting factor for for Russia on offense is like, look, this is not a kind of warfare where you can give give a hundred thousand men rusty rifles and send them charging off into no man's land. This is not World War One. I. I mean. Look, that, that kind of warfare expired the moment we even had machine guns to mow them all down. Uh, you know, it's not a matter of how many guys you can give rifles to. Uh, it's like, how many, how many tanks do you have? And even more than how many tanks do you have? How many trained tank crews do you have? And, and both of these are going to be big problems for Russia 
when it comes to using its mobilized men uh, on the offense. Uh, it is running kind of low on tanks. Certainly it's running low on modern tanks. Uh, we see Russia increasingly uh, dusting off mothballed 60-year-old tanks. And maybe it has a fair amount of 60-year-old tanks left, but it's got to be running very low on trained tank crews right now. And it takes quite a while to train train new ones. Uh, it's, it's a matter of several months at minimum. And, and so there, I, I don't think Russia has... I don't think it's shown any signs of the training it needs to do to, to create significant numbers of new tank crews. Yeah. Is the tank situation the same as the missile situation that they just, you know, they have a, a limited supply. Uh, they, you know, the for the best ones, they need technology and they, and they, you know, they have to manufacture it and they might not be able to. Pretty much. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think that Russia does have vast, reserves of ancient mothballed tanks uh and look i I think that some tank is generally better than none so these Mm -hmm. things aren't completely useless uh but it just doesn't you know it's it's tanks keep getting sparser and it's crews worse so i I think probably the crews are going to be the limiting factor for russia even more than the tanks themselves Yeah. So I, I don't think these mobilized men are going to be much use on offense. I think that they they could potentially be be useful on on the defensive to a, to a degree. Uh, like like you said, they can space them out more. Uh, they they can they can use them as reserve forces to to counterattack. Uh, and so I think that they'll be better than nothing on the defensive. Yeah. So you think that this? Uh, what I'm hearing is that I think you think that the uh, the sort of range of possibilities here uh, is between Russia mobilizes enough men for there to be a stalemate. Uh, that's the you know the best case for Russia uh, to Ukraine. Sort of chews them up with Gimlers, uh, and it steadily takes back uh, territory, or maybe Russian lines collapse in some places. Yeah. So. I think that there is a possibility. Can Russia, can Russia save Kherson? I mean, I think that this is a fast-moving situation. I mean, could it could it do I that? I don't or? think they can save it. Uh, and and this is a matter of, of the supply lines. Uh, what some people what people sometimes call the, the ground lines of communication. Uh, that there are bridges there, uh, and Ukraine has been steadily targeting the bridges and the barges, and so basically it's strangling Russia there. And Russia can't really send reinforcements or, or new equipment easily to Kherson. So I, I don't think the, that the mobilization is going to do much to save Kherson. And, and we see, so actually... Best case scenario, Russia is at least as that. Sorry, what? So best case scenario, I mean, the, 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 you don't see a scenario of Russia even holding. It's going to at least lose some more territory. It's going to at least lose Kherson. It, it's, it's looking like it's probably going to lose Kherson. Uh, that situation, it's been looking kind of like a stalemate. Uh, for the last month or so, but as recently as yesterday, we started to see that Ukraine is achieving some kind of breakthrough in the northern part of the Kherson front. Uh, basically, yesterday, U- Ukraine started seeing significant success there. It-, it spent a month kind of strangling Russia of supplies, and it seems that right now, as we speak, Ukraine may be starting to realize the benefits of that strategy. You know, like we've been saying to each other, uh, Ukraine kind of, it, it reaped the rewards of its strategy in the Kharkiv counteroffensive, but it paid the price 
in blood at the beginning of this uh, by attacking into the well-prepared Russian defense. And so it seems that Ukraine was experiencing heavy casualties in Kherson over the last yeah. month or so. Uh, how heavy? Hard to say. The Russians say extremely heavy, and I think the evidence supports that. Uh, but it seems that it, the strategy may be beginning to pay off now. Mm. Okay. So yeah. So this is uh, this is where you, so you see so you still so you think that best case for Russia is they lose Kherson, that sort of big dead, um, and then they they hold on to everything east of the Dnieper. What's what's protecting um, them in? Uh, yeah, like so the uh, the Oskal River was the protection in the north, right? But it looks yeah. like Ukraine crossed that. So what's protecting them in the north? Yeah. So not a ton. Uh, so Ukraine, Ukraine, as of as of the last couple of days, Ukraine has it seems perhaps decisively broken through the Russian defenses along the Oskal River, and and so the 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 next, I mean, I guess in this war. One of the, the things we've learned is that rivers are important. Rivers are very important. Uh, they're the best mm. defenses we've seen in, in this war. So if you want to look at Russia's next line of defense, you probably ought to look at the next important river. Uh, so let's see. They, they've broken through. Uh, so it seems that up in that area, I'm, I'm going to be mispronouncing these, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but it seems the city that everybody's talking about as the next Ukrainian target is Svatov. Uh, and, and it seems that it's it's coming up on that. It, it's approaching it. And then to the south of that, Kremina is also an important target. Uh, it, so it seems like Ukraine is likely to be able to take, take this line of defense from what I've been hearing. And from there, it seems that for the next very significant river that, that's running through uh, the Donbass region, let me see. I, I see an important river here. I, I don't Wasn't see there, what there, uh, when they when the, when the Russians took Lusuchansk and uh, the, the city next to it, right? There was a big river crossing there, wasn't it? That they they got uh, there. There was hit by the Ukrainians at one point, but eventually they, they made it across. Do you remember this? Yeah. This so this is the Seversky Donetsk River, and that's one of the most important rivers that's been running through the Donbas. And and we've seen the significance of rivers because we've seen that very frequently. The, the lines, the areas of control between the two sides, especially here, have been drawn by these rivers, especially the Seversky Donetsk River. Uh, but I, I think that basically, uh, and this is part of the significance of that city, uh, Lyman or Lehman, that, that Ukraine just took a few days ago. Uh, this establishes Ukraine's bridgehead across the Seversky Donetsk. And so mm. Ukraine has kind of conquered this, this obstacle that the river presents. That was the major yeah. bridgehead that it, it needed to cross that river. Mm. So it's it, yeah, it really seems. I mean, it seems bleak for it seems bleak for Russia, doesn't it? Yeah, and so I'm looking at the map. I'd have to see the name of the river, but but I think the next important city that we're looking at and the river that runs through it, uh, Staro Starobilsk, something like that. I, I see that there's a, a big river that's running all through uh, north to south through the entirety of, of the Donbas, especially through Luhansk. And this is significantly to the east of where the current fighting is. So basically, my conclusion is that if Ukraine manages to breach Kremina and Svatov like it wants to within the next couple of weeks, uh, then we're probably going to see it take a significant amount of territory in Luhansk after that, because the next next important river protection 
is significantly to the east. Can you do you have uh, do you have a good map that you're looking at? You can send me and we'll put it uh, on the show right, notes right too. now. I'm I just I'm just looking at the live UA map. Oh, okay. Let me see if I let me let me see if I can get that live UA. How do you how do you uh, live UA? Uh, just map. live okay, UA map dot com. com. Got it. Okay, so this is oh this so this is yeah this is much better. Like Google Maps does not give you good river i mean it does not give you you can't really see rivers on google maps yeah well, we, we have learned from this war that that rivers are are very good natural defenses in the okay, yeah this water. is very this is very interesting this is very uh uh yeah this is like yeah this is a very this is very detailed um and so uh let's see here so you're looking at what, what's the river you're looking can i find it on the map by uh, uh, I, I see that the area i'm i'm looking for the name but the city the key city that it's running through in luhansk is starobilsk is there a way to just search on this map with text? Let's see. Okay. Well, we don't have to do that now, but okay. Uh, let's see here. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll put the link to the live UA. I got you. How, how deep into Luhansk is that? Um, oh, pretty deep. Looking? I mean, so this is basically, if I'm right that this would be the next line of defense, that then Russia would be losing almost half of its current uh, territory in Luhansk. Mm. Okay, I see. Uh, is this does this river cross the Luha, the city of Luhansk? I see some river going through there, or is it it's west of that? Uh, the, the, let's see. That this river looks like it's. I should just find the name. No, it, it looks like it doesn't quite go all the way down to the city of Luhansk. Uh huh. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, people people are not, don't have the map in front of them. So, uh, okay. So yeah. So this is. Um, Okay, so you think, all right, I, I, so yeah, so you, I mean, you've been right so far, um, you know, so you make a convincing case that uh, Ukraine is going to uh, keep advancing. Now, is there anything, I always thought that there was, you know, potential, you know, there was always potential escalation as far as nuclear weapons goes. I mean, this was maybe uh, Russia's trump card. Um, and you brought up uh, the other day an um, interesting point that maybe they would, uh, they would escalate to chemical weapons first. Can you talk about uh, both of those options and you know whether this could actually work to, to uh, stem Ukraine's momentum? Yeah, so I've been reading about it, and, and I actually encountered the suggestion that Russia would use chemical weapons first uh, when I was reading a forum uh, on, on experts talking about the possibility of nuclear escalation. Now, do we know? I, I looked up whether Russia had chemical weapons, and apparently you know, they, they destroyed them um, at some point, reportedly. I mean, do, do people think that they have them? You know, uh, the, the experts were talking as if they had at least some of them. Uh, I think white, white phosphorus is, is a chemical weapon that we heard accusations that Russia used in Mariupol at one point. Yeah. There are a lot of potential bad. chemical weapons out there. And my impression is that some of these, even if they don't have them, they not they might not be that hard to create. I mean, look, we we were making these things back in World War One, right? Uh, so I think it's a, a live possibility that Russia might try to climb the ladder of escalation incrementally by using chemical weapons before any kind of nuclear weapon. Uh, and you know, that there is also an open question about how effective uh, nuclear weapons would be in turning the tide. And my thinking on this, there's a lot of uncertainty here. Nobody really knows for sure. Uh, 
But my my thinking on, on this is that the fear of nuclear weapons, the fear of tactical nuclear weapons might be a greater advantage than the weapons themselves when it comes to the battlefield. Mm. I mean, conventional weapons are perfectly devastating these days. Uh, conventional weapons are a lot deadlier than they were back in World War II. Uh, so kind of the gap between the, the, the damage you can do with conventional weapons and nuclear weapons, the gap between them has kind of narrowed since World War II. Uh, Russia is perfectly effectively using its conventional weapons to absolutely destroy entire cities. It's been doing that for a while. So sure, maybe using a tactical nuke would be a bit quicker than using regular weapons to destroy a city, but we've still seen Russia destroy entire cities already. So it's not clear to me how, how, how much the tactical nukes would be bringing to the table. Well, destroying sure a city in like, you know, a day or two versus destroying it in weeks and weeks, I mean, is a big difference, right? Yeah, but another factor to consider is that after this annexation, Russia would be officially, according to it, it would be nuking its own territory. Uh, and I'm not sure how good a PR move nuking your own territory is. Well, it would be it would be defensive in that in that case. Do you see that they they don't even say what the territories of these territories the, the I mean the 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 borders of these territories are? Right. Uh, we, we've annexed these territories, but we, we can't tell you what what the borders are. We don't know. It's very it's very strange. I thought before this that they would do this so maybe to create a credible nuclear deterrent. But if you don't even say what the borders are, that makes no no sense. Yeah, um, that, that's, what a, good, that's a good point. <laughs> Yeah, and okay. Well, I mean, we can uh, we can talk about what Russia is doing after, but um, yeah, go back to Duke. Uh, so you, you don't think they're you, you don't think they're that? Why you know why couldn't you just like okay? So maybe so the high Mars are very important. There's a finite number of them, right? You know, could it be that maybe nukes make you know increase your probability of getting the high Mars like wherever like you suspect that they are? Maybe it's too hard to hit them with anything else. But if you could just take out an entire area, maybe you can. I get mean, the high you, Mars, using like, using using a nuke. To, to try and take out a high Mars launcher, I mean that, that that's like you, that seems like a bit overkill, you know. It doesn't, well, if you doesn't, can't if you can't if you can't get, find the high if you, if you because uh, the high Mars are mobile, right? So if it's like if it's a matter of covering more territory, because look, Russia has thousands and thousands of nukes, right? And it looks like we're talking about high Mars. We're talking about in the uh, how many high Mars? We're talking about like twenty. That we're talking in the dozens. Um, yeah, yeah, so it doesn't. Yeah, it sounds so. Sounds I don't. I don't think we. I don't think we need to worry about Russia using nukes to to try and get at high Mars. That that's not feasible because the the PR cost would just be too high. Like you use a single nuke, there's there's a great cost it, when it comes to escalation. I mean, if they use a single nuke, the U.S. suddenly will start escalating in some way. Probably going to send more advanced equipment. Maybe the U.S. would respond by sending modern tanks. Maybe it would even send modern jets. Maybe it would send uh, short-range ballistic missiles to, to place on the high Mars, which Ukraine has been begging for. Uh, there, there's, maybe, maybe India and China would, would, would uh, draw back from this, their relations to Russia in some way. So th there's a great escalation cost to using even a single nuke. And so it wouldn't be worth it to try and take out a high Mars launcher or two. Uh, now, here, here's what I think. I still think when it comes to the offensive, I don't see how even using tactical nukes would help Russia when going on the offensive. 
because that's still a matter of boots on the ground, right? You know, you need you need infantry to take and hold territory. So so the, the nukes aren't going to help too much there. Uh, and other thing is, maybe it could be effect, a bit effective initially, but there's kind of natural strategies. Like if you're Ukraine, one thing you do if you know nukes are on the table is you would disperse your forces more, right? So that an, a single tactical nuke couldn't take out a ton of your guys. Uh, other th- the other thing you might do is you might try to get closer to the Russian forces. W- one natural tactic to respond to the battlefield nukes would be to go on the offensive even more. Uh, this is kind of what we saw Ukraine ad- ad- adopt back when Russia had this huge advantage in the Donbass fight uh, and, Ru- and Ukraine was running very low on ammunition. We, we saw that when, when it was outgunned, Ukraine's tactical uh, response was to turn it into a knife fight, basically, and and to send its men in right next to the Russian troops, uh, a close-range fight, so that Russia could no longer use its artillery without hitting its own men. Uh, I think this would be a natural tactic for Ukraine to use if nukes were on the table. Uh, You send your guys in closer. So first of all, when it comes to the farther out areas in the back, you disperse your guys more. When it comes to the closer areas, you go you go on the offensive and, and you, you get in close so that Russia can't nuke your guys without nuking its own. Hmm. Okay, so so okay, so you think I think what, what the 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 question here, um, you know, I think the way that you're looking at this, I, I think that, you know, I think the one thing it's not considering is you say, Oh, China might do this, you know, uh India might do that, but from our conversation, it seems like you know there's high risk strategies and low risk strategies. And from what you're saying, it seems like that the low risk strategy for Russia uh, is certain to lead to failure, or very very likely to lead to failure. So there's uncertainty about you know what the political reaction to nuclear weapons would be, and and this and that. And but you know, aren't they in the position, or aren't they going to be in a position where they have to take gambles, and you know they're just going to have to take some of these risks that you talk about? Maybe. So, so it's a matter of which risks have the better reward. Uh, let me tell you just what I think Russia's best strategy is other than, you know, kind of giving up. Uh, okay. Uh, other than giving up uh, and just letting Ukraine win, something like that. Uh, if Russia, w- Russia wants to continue the fight, I guess its best strategy is to, is to gum up, is to, is to establish these strong defensive lines uh, back at this next line of defense. I, I think it might be a bit too late to, to reinforce the, the current line of defense in the Donbass. Uh, but it's, it's not too late to start digging in and, and sending all these mobilized men to a new line of defense, uh, gum up the ground there, turn it into a grinding war of attrition, and just make the cost and bloodshed so great on both sides that Ukraine is willing to offer some deal uh, at the same time, you know, we, we see Russia pursuing its energy war with Europe uh, to try and increase the costs on Europe so that Europe pressures Ukraine to come to the negotiating table. I think that, I think that Russia intends to pursue this kind of strategy, and this, this strategy could be effective. Uh, so in, entrenched, create, create lines of defense farther back. They're not going to be able to defend Kherson. 
they're not going to be able to defend this line along the Oskill River. Create some new lines of defense with these reserves farther back. Uh, and then just make the war very bloody and very expensive for everybody. And at some point, the pressure will be high on Ukraine to, to come to the table and make some kind of deal, giving Russia something to show for all of its efforts. Yeah, I guess the idea is just raise the costs for you know everybody and then rely on the defensive advantage and use the defensive advantage uh, in an intelligent way. Okay. You know, and you would Ukraine be- is riding high right now. Ukraine, Ukraine is, is, is kind of saying, we're not going to give anything. We're not going to negotiate at all. We're going to take back everything. Uh, and it can say that right now because it's advancing right now. But its attitude may change if the war becomes very bloody for both sides again. Yeah. What about a purely compelling strategy? I mean, just nuking... Like, forget tactical nukes. Just like, what's the opposite of tactical nukes? Conventional nukes? Strategic. Just like, strategic. Yeah, like strategic tactical nukes. nukes basically means small nukes meant, meant to affect the battlefield. Strategic nukes are, you know, the big ones. Yeah. So, you know, why not try to do, you know, like, you know, just try to, uh, you know, try to um, uh, compel ukraine by nuking the cities now you say it might increase their will to fight um or might you know not decrease it but you know you, you know who knows like if you know if you can magnify the impact on civilians and the economy and everything by a factor of you know 10 we just have no idea um you know whether whether ukraine would go along with that it would be like maybe japan at the end of world war ii now, i know there's cost i know china would not like it india would uh would not like it uh the u.s would you know uh, provide more support to Ukraine and so would the Europeans. But, you know, maybe you're like, okay, so if I was Putin, I guess there's two things I could convince myself of. First of all, maybe this would be like taking it to the brink and playing a game of chicken and maybe the U.S. has the opposite reaction and says, okay, we, we need to wash our hands of this um, or it's not worth it. Now, you know, we, we can potentially be risking our own cities or our own lives. Um, you know, so that, that could happen. Um, or it could be that Ukraine... Just you know, whatever forces are you know on Ukraine, it's just like the the, the the humanitarian costs of this is just too much, and like people empty the cities, the you know the economy collapses. Uh, it, it's certainly like you know it's a wild card. You you know you don't know, um, and potentially you know could you convince yourself if you're Putin that this that this could work, right? That's that's the question, and you could potentially get more out of that strategy than what you're suggesting, which is just have a defensive line and not hope for any more gains. Well. At very least, you would first try what I'm suggesting before you would escalate to. You it know, depends on what you what you want, right? Ukraine, if, if you're happy to, it depends on what you want. If you're happy with just defensive lines, and okay, if you still have some hope of at least getting, I don't know, Donetsk and Luhansk, the entire regions, because that's sort of the, uh, you know, if you have hopes of getting more territory, maybe you do the other thing, right? Uh, so, so you know, the strategy you're considering basically just nuke Ukraine to ashes trying to break its will. You know, there are a few problems with it. First of all, it strikes me as wishful thinking uh, because we've already seen Russia try to just break Ukraine's will in various ways. And each time so far, Ukraine's will to fight has but been strengthened. That, but, that, but, this world, but this was World War II. The U.S. tried to break Japan and Japan's will through conventional bombing, and then they used nuclear weapons, and then, and then they did, right? Because it was just of a different magnitude. Right, right, but but you know here there there are options for defense. I mean, so first of all, let, let's game this out a bit. 
one thing we would see is that Ukraine Ukraine would would scream that that we need to send them the most advanced air defenses in the world right now, and we probably would. Uh, question is whether we would send only the defense systems, or we would even send the NATO personnel to man them. Uh, another question is the question of fallout. Uh, I think this is a big thing to consider uh, because uh, Lindsey Graham was just talking about this uh, a few days ago. He was saying that in his mind, using using nukes in this way would be an attack on NATO because the fallout would affect NATO countries or could affect NATO countries. Uh, and I think that's Russia, Russia blusters that it's already fighting NATO. But I think on some level, it must understand that it is not actually fighting NATO at the moment. And things could get much worse for it if it were really fighting NATO. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand, I understand that that all makes, that all makes sense. Uh, the, you know, the question is like, you know, it could be, a, you could be trying to play a game of chicken. That would be, that would be the strategy. Like we just care about this a lot more than, you know, than you, um, you know, we'll go to the brink and I don't know, I'm not hundred percent sure Biden would send troops and would want to go to potentially have a nuclear exchange with Russia. I mean, maybe he would, but you know, maybe he wouldn't, maybe he would, he would back off. I don't know. Right. We, we, we've, this is an ongoing topic of conversation, and I've been seeing different, different stories about the potential U.S. response if, if Russia uses any kind of nuke. I mean, we had a retired General uh, Petraeus in the news recently, and he was just saying that if Russia uses any nukes, the U.S. will just wipe out its Black Sea fleet and, and wipe out a couple of its armies in Ukraine. He was suggesting we would have a very strong conventional response. Uh, alternatively, I forget who it was, but I saw somebody else, some kind of U.S. official in the news a few days ago, saying that the U.S. would simply respond by taking out whichever Russian unit launched the nukes. Now, I think that would be a very weak response. If, if Russia launches nukes and our U.S. response is simply to take out the unit that fired the nuke, that's extremely weak. And if, if, if I'm Russia, I'm launching another nuke. I'm not scared by that response. Yeah, I so, think we have we have different. Yeah, we're, we have a we're talking to like I have different I have different normative views from you on this. I don't think I don't think any of these responses would be particularly wise. You know, I, I just don't. I'm you know risk averse here about nuclear war. Um, but you know, strategic yeah, strategically, um, you know, we're just talking strategically. Yeah, I mean, like what Petraeus says and what people I would say. I mean, I just. We don't know. We're going to wake up. Like I, I don't think even Biden knows like what the international politics will be like, what public opinion will be like, because I think that the response to the Ukraine uh, war was much stronger than people anticipated. Um, I think that the like this, the you know, cutting Russia off from SWIFT and stuff. Like so there was stuff like that. It looked like it, it was it was going much further than um, what the Western what the Western countries were willing to do, but they ended up going further than like what they were actually threatening. So I think there was a kind of. Um, uh, there was, you know, just uh, this groundswell of, you know, public support for Ukraine or elite opinion uh, going towards Ukraine that, like, even Biden or, uh, you know, Macron and these other Western leaders, I think they did, they didn't even foresee that. Um, yeah. So and, well, let, let me and, say that. Okay, go on. And then, well, and just making the analogy to the the day after, you know, there's a nuclear weapon blast. It could be the same thing where it's like there's a response pushing people to be more hawkish, but there could be the opposite response. People get freaked out and say, okay, we really have to uh, pr present some concessions here to Russia and end this thing. So 
I would say that the U.S.'s greatest interest here when it comes to the nuclear question, obviously our greatest worry is about avoiding an all-out nuclear war between us and Russia. And obviously Russia is very concerned about that too. And so th there are multiple paths on the ladder of escalation. There are ways that we could try to avoid this. Uh, so look, if Russia, Russia launches a nuke, I would say one way we would try to avoid a full-out nuclear war is that we have to have a military response if they launch a nuke, but it doesn't have to be a nuclear response. And I think it would not be a nuclear response. So this, this is a clear line that we could stick to, to, to reassure Russia that it's not going to come to nuclear war between the two of us. If they launch a nuclear attack on okay. Ukraine, we cannot make our own response nuclear. Uh, and that, that's a clear rule we can stick to that can avoid the escalation to, to the nightmare scenario. Yeah, but I mean, I, what what about a rule that we'll do we'll do more stuff for Ukraine, but we won't. I think crossing the line of directly hitting Russia with American, uh, you know, the American military directly hitting Russia, I think that that's that's frightening. I mean, you know, you, you know, they right. could see that. And, and so, yeah, so so what, what I've been reading is that we're talking about not using NATO personnel themselves to to hit Russia, uh, to, or to hit the Russian units that launched the the tactical nukes. Uh, I think the current discussion is about arming Ukraine with the weapons that that could hit those units. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is the this is the potential. This is the nightmare scenario for Russia, right? The escalation. You know, right now, no matter what's going to happen um, in the near future, it looks like they're not going to you know have missiles hitting to St. Petersburg or Moscow or uh, you know there are there are other major cities. And the idea is that. We could still we could still escalate to that point either not you know hopefully not through us doing it but potentially even like you know giving that option to Ukraine. Here's here's the point I've been making to you that that we haven't mentioned so far today. Uh, I think that Russia has been getting great value out of its nukes already without using them. Uh, we have been the United States has been giving Russia a gift uh, in acknowledgement of its nuclear threat. We have been very restrained in the kind of weapons that we are still giving to Ukraine. Ukraine has repeatedly been demanding these uh, these longer-range ballistic missiles that the HIMARS can fire, uh, attack attack missiles or something like you know ATACMS, the the missiles that can fly something like 150 miles or so could hit Moscow. Ukraine has been demanding these missiles from us, saying that it cannot win without them for several months, and we've just been refusing to provide them. Uh, you know, it seems every week I see I see a Ukrainian general or, or, or a or politician demand these missiles, and we keep refusing. And Ukraine has been demanding jets from us from the beginning, and we keep refusing those too. We haven't even been giving Ukraine the most modern tanks. We've been helping them get old Soviet-era tanks. Uh, Germany has refused to give it modern tanks. Uh, we have been refusing to give it modern tanks so far. And so there are many very advanced weapons that we have been refusing to give to Ukraine in acknowledgement of Russia's nukes. So it's already, it's already been getting very great value out of those nukes without using them. And I've been telling you that this is basically the unofficial gentleman's agreement between Russia and us. Russia doesn't use its nukes. We don't give Ukraine any of these very advanced weapons that it's begging for. But if Russia breaks its part of the gentleman's agreement, then we're no longer getting any value. We're not getting anything in return from refraining from giving these weapons. 
And so now we start to give them. Yeah. So, I, you know, this, this leaves me like, I guess I'm more optimistic than when I went into the conversation. Um, because I'm thinking, well, Russia, you know, they might see nukes, but you're, but you're saying, you know, the, the, the idea that there is an escalation ladder, um, that we haven't even begun to climb. And maybe that's, maybe that's, that's scary, but the point is Russia has a lot to lose here by, um, by going up that ladder, right? At every point. We have a lot of, we have a lot of very effective conventional responses available if Russia takes the nuclear option. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm just trying to think, I mean, because we have to think about uh, tail end risk, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what if the Russian response is nukes, the threat of nuclear war is basically all we have. (laughs) You know, what if, you know, what if it's just existential for Russia? I mean, what if Putin is going to fall, you know, if he thinks that the political situation is such that, you know, he can't afford to lose this war or he doesn't want to go down in history as the man who lost this war and destroyed Russia. Um, and he thinks like, I'm not interested in escalatory ladder that has too many advantages for the U S I'm just going to draw a line that says, you know, I'm going to nuke. And, you know, if, you know, cause I'm trying to think from his position, like everything sounds bad because not, uh, not using nukes, just conventional war sounds bad. Escalating. You make a very good case at sort of escalating in a, uh, you know, relatively conservative way. I mean, it's strange to say using nuclear weapons as uh, you could do that in a conservative way, but you you know you can imagine that that seems like a bad option too because you're on the escalatory ladder where the U.S. still has the advantage. The only you might say to yourself if you're Russia, the only thing where I'm on equal, I'm an equal level of the U.S. and its allies is the ability to destroy the world. Right. And and if we just make that the question, are you willing to destroy the world? Then we can win. Any other way, we can't because they will beat us. Well, this is a possibility worth considering. Like you said, it's a tail risk. Uh, And so we suppose Putin says, you either give me something for my trouble or I end human history right here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So first of all, obviously at that point, China and India are going to be very... uh, they're, they're going to be enemies. Oh, he's, of, yeah, he's, he's beyond the point. Uh, there, he's beyond the point of caring about them. Yeah, and so, well, you know, at that point, first of all, we we might need to see some kind of proof. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we might need to see some kind of proof of, of, of that that threat is serious. But if if we do get adequate proof, hey, maybe we throw him a bone at that point. We throw him a, sh- a bone in the short term. And then the entire world turns on Russia and crushes it with sanctions in the long term. Yeah. So it sounds like you. It sounds like you're saying we, we've, we've we've had this sort of dialectic where you've come to the conclusion that Putin's only real strategy to get get anything is to threaten to destroy the world. I mean, that seems like no, no, seems no. Like no rem- remember, I think I think that that the best strategy for him is is to just defensive uh, lines, create, right? Create new yeah. defensive lines farther back in the Donbas. Uh, around this this river, uh, around the city Starabils, uh, create new defensive lines there. Plug them up with with all these mov- mobilized men. Uh, create some new new strong defensive lines in 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 the south in the Zaporizhia region region. Uh, and also, you know, Kherson is probably going to be lost, but you know, defend the other side of the river. Uh, I think that's the best strategy. Gum up. Continue the. Pr- 
continue to pursue the conventional war and make the conventional war as bloody for both sides as possible uh, and, and rely on countries like Germany to successfully convince Ukraine to come to the negotiating table. I, I think that is the strategy that Russia probably will pursue and has some chance of success. Okay. Well, that's okay. That's, that's more optimistic. Now that, that maybe that's the next step. If that fails, I mean, if, if they can't, you know, if the HIMARS and the Ukrainian uh, technology advantage and Russia, you know, you know, uh, is depleting its, uh, you know, its uh, stockpiles and things, if that doesn't work, then maybe, maybe falls back on that destroy the world strategy, right? At that point. Yeah. But I think that they're, you know, we're a long way from that point. That he, he's he's still going to try this other thing first. Yeah, but I mean the way we the way we just you know, but the way we we've discussed it is like any piecemeal ex, uh, uh, escalation, right, can bring a U.S. response that is just I mean better. He just does not have the economic or military tools to match to match the West. Um, and so we're back where you know he would presumably game this out and see you know could see. Uh, every step of the way, and then that's that's when I think he would. That's potentially when he could roll the dice. Uh, maybe so. You know, I, I think this war ultimately. You you have this debate between the people. You you have the people on the one side saying you need to allow Putin to save face. You need to offer him some kind of concession, and then you got the people all the way on the other side saying, "Wow, like wow, you're you're appeasers. Uh, you, you never never give in. Never don't give Russia a single inch." You know, I, I come out somewhere in the middle on, on that debate, I think probably ultimately after the war bogs down again and becomes very bloody for everybody, I think probably, probably this war will end a negotiating table and probably Russia will get some token gesture uh, in order to allow it to save face. It won't be worth all, all the blood and treasure it's spent, but it will be something. You know, early on in this war and even fairly recently, I've seen I've seen statements from Zelensky where he was talking about potentially uh, negotiating uh, and giving Russia some kind of concession on Crimea. I, I think that could be in play as as the the tool to end the end things at the negotiating table. Yeah, I mean that 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 seems it seems like to me that to have to come come away with Crimea, but not even have what you ha- had before the war was launched, the Donetsk and Luhansk, you know the. Portions. I think. I mean. I think. I can't. I can't imagine that Putin would end up in the red, right? Like the only battle. Like you know, he's going to end up in the red as far as like economic damage and deaths to to Russia. But like in the red, as far as like territory, he could at least look at this. You know, one measure and say, okay, we're in the black when it comes to territory. If they're in the red, if they don't at least keep that. Well, that, that that's going to be determined by whose boots are on the ground where when everybody gets serious about negotiating. Yeah, there's, right. there's not a chance that Ukraine is going to take its soldiers off territory they're on and give that to Russia. No, yeah, I think that's 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 true, right? So whatever Ukraine takes, um, you're 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 right. And Russia, you know, Ukraine just like we've said, probably has much more um, offensive capabilities here than than Russia does. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, this is this is this is interesting. Let me let me ask you. Um, uh, you know, I brought up the um, the. 
the annexations. What do you what do you think they're doing here? Why are they announcing these four regions where they don't even control much of them, where they're embarrassing themselves and losing? You know, they lost a uh, uh, Lehman or however you say that city's name the day after uh, you know Putin announced the annexation. They don't. They say they say that they don't know where the borders are. Uh, that's yet to be determined. Like what? It, like doesn't this just make them look foolish? Like what? What is what is going on here? It makes them a li- look pretty foolish to me, especially this part like we've annexed them, but we can't tell you exactly what we've annexed because we don't know the borders. Like yeah. it, it's supposed to be like it seems like a threat that has no teeth, basically. Like, first of all, they annexed territory they didn't control. And I mean, how often has that been done in hum- human history? annexing territory that you don't even control yeah it's very uh yeah you, yeah that's strange you can you can you can claim territory and all but to annex it new i mean i can't think of a historical like, like what's next is, is ukraine gonna annex moscow <laughs> they should do that that would actually be a pretty funny troll yeah yeah so i i don't, I don't know what really to make of like in part i think it was a move of desperation than this annexation I think it was it was partly meant meant to to make a gesture at the nuclear threat, you know, in small part. It was meant to be a vague gesture at the nuclear threat, saying, "Oh, we're going to annex them, and we're going to they're going to be Russian territory, and we're going to defend Russian territory with all weapons at our disposal, including nukes." But it, it's like they were they weren't willing to flat out make the nuclear threat, and so they were kind of constructing it through a series of syllogisms. But the syllogisms, the premises are all vague, and so the the threat isn't effective. Yeah, that's a plausible explanation. But that explanation just makes them sound very stupid. I mean, that just that sounds like, you know, that sounds like they're just sort of grasping at anything that sort of sounds good and makes them feel good in the moment, but has you know has has no benefit or is counterproductive. I mean, that that, that that's you know, it's not satisfying. Um, well, that explanation. It it seems like a Hail Mary, and it seems like maybe Russia was kind of at the stage where it was throwing everything at the wall to, and hoping that something would stick. So they would annex it, and then what? Like the people of these regions would rise up and say, ah, now we're part of Russia. Now we have something to fight for. Or maybe the Russian people would you know, have this patriotic surge. and so, like, Maybe is, is that it? Maybe it changes and, and look, the psychology? Maybe, maybe, maybe in part it's meant to work kind of hand-in-hand hand with the mobilization so that it can give a justification to the mobilized Russians to say, look, you aren't, we're not sending you, you to invade Ukraine. We're sending you to defend Russian territory. Yeah, I guess, I guess that, that makes sense. It's, it's part and parcel of the <clears throat> mobilization. Yeah. It's a psychological play here that sort of makes them look stupid, but they, the, the, you know, what gave me trouble with it is that they, they know, they must know that in the short run, they're going to be losing Territory, and so maybe that's maybe I guess so they're gonna look stupid annexing this territory and then losing it. But then maybe that's that's the point. They Russian territory was taken. Like, who's who's dumb enough to fall for that? I mean, that's pretty stupid. I, I think it was a bit of a bluff. I think it was a bit of a bluff that Ukraine is in the process of calling. But but that doesn't make. I mean, it's like they were they were expecting what Ukraine would see the annexation and they would just stop moving and stop you know fighting. I mean that that it seems well, unlikely. Maybe. maybe, maybe. Maybe in part Russia was thinking we have nothing to lose except that we'll look foolish. That's sort of the yeah. That's sort of the I I, I think that looking foolish is sort of their entire 
like the entire reason they're still fighting this war instead of surrendering is to like not look foolish. I think that that's like sort of that's sort of fundamental. I don't think that's like you know a trivial concern. It's like you know they they look really stupid if they you know just give up and, and decide they don't want to fight this war anymore. That's sort of what's continuing the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I just can't see any real advantage that comes from this vague annexation. Yeah, I mean, it, it indicates. I mean, it, it just makes me very. Um, uh, doubtful about the competence or wisdom. I mean, not that we haven't had plenty of reason to doubt their, you know, uh, competence before. Um, but this is, yeah, this, this, this is, you know, this is just adding to a case that you know the Russian government doesn't know what it's doing and it's now, in a lot of trouble. I, I would add actually that one one potential military advantage that they could maybe talk themselves into is that legally, uh, now that they've annexed these Ukrainian territories we see Russia starting to conscript the Ukrainians in them. So before they were conscripting uh, Ukrainians from the Donbass, uh, but those were you know, supposedly independent regions. Now, now there is talk of the Russians conscripting Ukrainians in Kherson and, and other similar regions to fight for Russia. So that's you know, one, you, you could suppose it, it might be some kind of military advantage. Although it's dubious, how much value these Ukrainian conscripts will have fighting for Russia. Well, the other thing is, I mean, uh, Russian law um, says that uh, conscripts can only defend Russia, right? So they would say conscripts would not be sent to Ukraine. So now the conscripts from not just they can conscript people from Ukraine, but there's conscripts within Russia can fight yeah. on that territory, right? So that yeah. makes So it, it may have that legal advantage too. Yeah. So it sounds like it sounds like it's very funny to think about this regime being very like legalistic, um, but yeah, that, that seems to be, yeah, technicality. Oh, now we can, you know, it's, it's too hard to just say, you know, they have to change some law. But I, it's weird. I mean, Putin can get the, you know, the crown, the Duma to, I think, rubber stamp uh, pretty much any, anything he wants, right? I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of real uh, opposition. So I guess it just makes it rhetorically easier. Maybe that's, maybe that is how the world works. Like you're just being able to say, okay, that's Russia. Okay, we've created like this, um, we've created this like, uh, like, uh, frame it like a kind of political correctness like it's now politically correct to say this is um this you know i'm not using political i'm using politically correct in the old like i think i think they, I, i've heard that lenin i don't know if this is true or lenin basically created the uh the term politically correct to mean just like the line that you have to take right so it becomes mm-hmm. like not, i don't mean like wokeness so it's like politically correct position within russia becomes um that uh, these territories, you know, Kherson and whatever, uh, Donetsk, they're all part of, they're all part of Russia. And there's like this dialectic process where like, you can't, you know, syllogism, right? Like you said, like, okay. And now we have this thing where conscripts defend Russian territory who would disagree with that. So you have these two things that nobody can disagree with in the Russian political context. And then you put them together, you, you get conscripts fighting in Ukraine basically. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's the clearest explanation of what kind of advantage Russia might get of, out of this annexation. It's it's the legal advantage for its own processes uh, for for using using its conscripts. Yeah, yeah, right. That makes you know, sense. I, I, you know, I, I think that the in the U.S. we kind of view Russia as a lawless place where anything goes. But as I've been reading about it, I've gotten the impression that that law matters more there. Proce- following proper procedure matters more there than U.S. Uh, media depicts. Yeah, it's a stra- it's a strange, you know, it's a strange regime. I mean, that's you know, there there are this this thing called personalist dictatorships, um, 
uh, in the political in political scientists use. And I, I don't know. I mean, is that just every regime? Like, does every regime just have procedures? And I think it must. I mean, the fact that Putin calls himself a president rather than a czar, right? is significant, right? It, it means that he can't just sort of get up one day and say X, Y, and Z. He sort of has to have this entire complicated machinery, give it the, you know, bring public opinion along, uh, get the, you know, get the media, get the media to have a certain line, frame things in a certain way. Uh, so yeah, you know, this is interesting. I think, I think we've, I like this conversation. We've figured things out. Some things that were very puzzling to me, um, before we started talking, uh, are, are sort of clearer um, now, and I think that that yeah, they, what's going on in the annexation, I think is uh, is an example of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, great. All right. I think yeah. I think that's I think that's uh, enough for today. I think we've exhausted you know quite a bit. Is there anything uh, you want to say before we uh, before uh, we sign off? No, I think we covered a lot of stuff. Okay, that was that was uh, that was that was that was enjo- enjoyable. I hate to enjoy war, but you know that, that was an enjoyable conversation. And uh, yeah, we'll do this again next time soon. Yep, sounds good.